We come this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, we're going to be looking at the first six verses, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version translation. So please follow along with me in your uh, digital version or on the screen or in your old-fashioned Bible. The Apostle Paul writes these words. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Once again, let's pray. Father, we come before you praying for that full measure of your Holy Spirit that is so necessary for us in order to understand your word. We ask for this, Father, because uh, there are weighty, weighty things connected with uh, what's going on within our culture, what's going on within our lives. Weighty, weighty matters for which your word has always been able to shed light and not just a small amount of light, but deep and penetrating light. We thank you for the scriptures that can pierce the difference between light and darkness in every way. It can shed light within our own hearts. It can also bring light to bear upon the issues and problems and struggles of the world. And so we pray for that. We pray for the leading and guidance of your Holy Spirit. We pray for your word to speak to us in a very powerful way. We pray that you would transform us by the renewing of our minds through your word, that we would conform no longer to this world's patterns, that we might instead be conformed to the image of your son. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Because the subject matter of this passage that we're coming into now this significant topic of slaves and masters, we must remind ourselves of several important issues of context. The misinterpretation of this passage and all other slave-master passages of the New Testament have contributed to the cultural moral mess and brokenness and the damage of racial relations that we have experienced in our country and in our history. We can't deny the historical realities that the Christianity of the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries in Europe and North America aided and abetted the slave trade and the slave economy of the antebellum South. And it did so by twisting the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, particularly the New Testaments, to make the bold claim that the word of God gave its approval and its endorsement to the institution of slavery. So in taking up this passage, we're going to labor hard to get the correct historical and theological and moral context correct. 
in order to truly understand the significance of what Paul says about slaves and masters. And that is why this morning's message is really only the introduction to a two-part message. It is a lengthy introduction, one that I believe is necessary in order that we can then do justice to this passage and to what the New Testament and specifically the Apostle Paul has to say. And so I have five parts to this introduction. And the first place I want to begin with is this. I want to review and emphasize again the controlling idea of the book of 1 Timothy, what Paul has to say to Timothy about what the church is, that the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. And that means that the church is to be the voice of God's truth revealed in the scriptures, promoting significantly and principally the redemption that is in Christ, promoting the good news that fallen human beings can be reconciled to God, redeemed from a broken and fallen kind of life, and set on a life of service that is grounded in love for God and love for other human beings. Now, this is an enormous responsibility. Jesus said that everyone who is on the side of truth listens to him. But if we are not faithful presenting the truth to the world, if we as Christians are not faithfully presenting the truth of God's word to the world, then we're partners with the serpent that was in the garden. That is why understanding and presenting the teachings of the scriptures is of the greatest importance for the church and for every Christian. The second thing that I want us to understand is found in verses 3 to 4a. It's a phrase, the significance of the phrase, the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying that his teachings, and we could likewise include the other apostles who are New Testament writers, Matthew, John, Peter, James, their teachings too. They are the sound words of Jesus Christ. We know this because Christ promised that his Holy Spirit would lead his disciples, his apostles, into all truth. The point is this. You can never drive a wedge between what Paul has written or what Peter has written or what any of the New Testament scripture writers have written and Jesus. There is no wedge. The New Testament speaks faithfully and clearly and truthfully the very words of Christ. Paul makes that claim very strongly in the book of Galatians in chapter 1, 11, and 12. He says to the Galatians, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to you by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So when we read Paul, we are reading Christ. Uh, now, a third point would be this, that what Paul says as the teaching voice of Christ would be Christ, Christ's words to the church in a broken world. The Greco-Roman world, like every culture in civilization, was a broken world. Now, we illustrated this earlier, that is a few weeks ago, when we stressed that the Greco-Roman culture knew nothing of the unselfish love of charity. That world's morality, that is the world of the Greco-Roman culture, knew nothing about the caring of people in light of the second greatest commandment. 
Nothing about helping and serving others, especially those who could not return the care and service. There was no genuine golden rule that was practiced in the classical Greek world. There was no sense that a human being was supposed to care about others or to do for others, even as someone would do for his own self. Instead, we need to remember that the Greco-Roman world valued things and valued a different way of living, a different standard altogether. In that earlier message, I named it for you. I called it the quid pro quo viewpoint, which is to say, I will do good to you and I'll do good for you because I expect you to do likewise. I expect you to give back to me the same kind of treatment that I've given to you. In other words, because I treat you in this manner, you're obligated to treat me in the same way. Or I will be a good person to you as long as you're a good person to me. This was the constant ethical and social norm, the social rule of life in the Greco-Roman world. So when I help you, when I am kind to you, when I'm not rude to you, when I smile at you, when I greet you, for any and every social interaction, the good I do toward you obligates you to give back the same toward me. And if you don't, then I don't have to treat you with any kind of virtue at all. And if you treat me badly, then I'm fully justified in treating you exactly the same way. That's quid pro quo. That is why in the Roman, the Greco-Roman culture, the so-called virtuous citizens had no real interest in charity. That is, in helping people who could be of no help at all toward them. There was no perceived value in doing so. There was no reason, there's no reason for me to serve you if I have no expectation of you ever serving me back. That's why, again, in the Greco-Roman world, there was virtually no practice of charity. There was no helping and caring for those who could not return the favor. And that's because there was no moral principle like the second greatest commandment. There was no practical rule like the golden rule. Uh, yes, there was the silver rule. The silver rule says, don't do to others anything you would not want to have them do back to you. Because that fits the quid pro quo culture. You do something mean and nasty, and they'll feel the obligation or the justification to do the same back to you. Further, in the Greco-Roman culture, there's no moral parallel to the story of the Good Samaritan. So here's what you need to understand. Every social relationship is reciprocal. It's a two-way street. I will treat you well so that you will treat me well. What is entirely unknown is agape love, love that is truly unconditional, love, kindness, care, concern, charity that can be given in the absence of any expectation in return. All, relationship in the, all relationships in the broken culture of the Greco-Roman world were conditional. Quid pro quo.
It's a different understanding altogether from the moral vision of the New Testament. So that's what I want us to think about now. What is the moral vision of the New Testament? Well, followers of Christ are to live according to the second great commandment. We are to practice the golden rule or to imitate the good Samaritan. We're not to conform to the patterns of the world. We're to have a different vision and a different pattern of living. We're to have a code of code of life that represents godly conduct that we apply to all of life. So let's review this, this code that we're called to a little more specifically. There are three principles. The first is this, the first and greatest commandment. Now, in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 22, 36 to 38, they approach Jesus and they say, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus responds by saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Now, everyone who dares to identify as a Christian must confess this as the first principle we are called to live by. I am called to love God above everything else, more than my own life, more than my own family, more than my job, more than my friends, more than my country. Even knowing and confessing that I can't do this, I really don't do this, I can never do this perfectly, I still know that this is the first and highest moral principle of being a Christian and a follower of Christ. It is first and foremost. But then the second principle is the second greatest commandment. So Jesus goes on to say, and a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So after God, my next highest moral principle is to love others, to love my neighbors, even as I love myself. And to explain what this means, Jesus taught the golden rule as the practical rule for living out the second greatest commandment. So in Matthew 7, 12, Jesus said this, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. It is commanded of us to love by doing, to positively do to others, even unto our neighbors, according to how we would want to be loved ourselves. And to understand the question, well, then who is my neighbor? Jesus taught the story of the Good Samaritan. When you see a person in need, then we are seeing those who are our neighbors. Every person who's needing help every person who's needing service, even those that the patterns of this world would call our enemies. These are our neighbors to love and to serve no less than we would love and serve ourselves. And then the third principle, the third principle of the basic code of conduct for Christians. According to the Apostle Paul, we must live in this world according to the pattern of life that is set down for us by Christ. And the Apostle Paul lays this out in Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 3. Paul says, 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now note, putting others and counting others as more significant than yourself. So God has first significance. Others are second in significance, which means that we are to rank ourselves as third in significance. And then and Paul goes on in verse four. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others to back up what this means, to back up the second greatest commandment and then how we are to rank ourselves as third. And then Paul will give Jesus Christ as the very example of what it means to rank others before ourselves. So in verse five, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the key idea is that Christ took the form of a servant, a doulos, a slave. And Christ was that servant. He was that slave, even unto the obedience that took him to death, the death on the cross. Paul is saying this is the moral mindset to be adopted by the Christian. The servant mindset assumes third place in all of life. God is first. Others are second. We count ourselves third. Now, I deeply hope that none of this is new to you as a Christian. I deeply hope that some time ago when we were preaching through Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45, when Jesus taught his disciples about godly leadership, when Christ said that anyone who wanted to be a leader as a Christian must become a servant of all, that you understood that being a servant is what we are all called to be as Christians. And before that, when we studied Philippians, when we study this passage about Christ, you understood that we are called to have this mind in ourselves. That was also the mindset of Christ in his incarnation. Excuse me. That not only did he become a man, but as a man, Jesus ranked himself as a servant, as a doulos, as a slave. He ranked himself as third. That all of us who are called Christians would rank ourselves in the same way. The very code of conduct by which we are to live requires that we rank ourselves as third. Nothing that's being said here is new. This is the application of the gospel to how we live. We are in the world to serve, to rank everything about our lives first, according to God and the greatest commandment. Then second, according to our neighbor and the second greatest commandment. And then in third place to consider ourselves. None of us do this perfectly, but this is the calling and this is the code. God is first. 
Others are second. We are third. In my calling as an elder and pastor, God is first. My church family is second. I am third. In my calling as a husband, God is first. My wife is second. I am third. That's what Paul laid out so clearly in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. He said, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, that's exactly the pattern of Philippians chapter 2. This is the doulos pattern. God first, wife second, husband third. And as a father, God is first. My children are second. I am third. As a citizen in this country, God is first. My fellow citizens are second. I am third. This is our calling and code as Christians. God is first. Others are second. We are third. And this is not new. This has always been the essential moral vision and the moral code of the followers of Christ. This is historical, biblical Christianity. And now fifth and, and lastly, in terms of our introduction, we come to the key question that we need to be clear on. Before we look at Paul's instructions to those who are human slaves, before we look at the doulos condition of those who belong to earthly masters in the Greco-Roman world, before we look, the key question is this. How do we as Christians live when the culture has put us in a subservient role, a role that is contrary to the design of creation? That question is very important because most of the New Testament followers of Christ were in a subservient role in the broken Greco-Roman world. And the basic answer for them, and likewise for us, is this. We Christians are to live according to a set of principles and practices that embody the I am third model that Jesus has given us. This is every believer's calling, every believer's code, in every aspect of life. Now, Paul addresses it in various New Testament passages. But in the book of Romans, we find the longest exposition of the practices that embody the I am third code of conduct. It begins in chapter 12, verse 9, and continues all the way through most of chapter 15. And the ESV translators begin this section with subtitle, Marks of the True Christian. But all of the subsequent subtitles are marks of the true Christian. They each one express an aspect of the I am third code of conduct. Submission to the authorities. Best understood when we know that we are third. Fulfilling the law through love can only happen when we count ourselves third. Not passing judgment on one another. Again, if we count ourselves as third, we won't be count passing judgment. Not causing others to stumble. Hmm. A good example of the I am third perspective. And then the example of Christ himself, who made it very clear. God first, those he came to save second, himself third. But back to Romans 12, 
verses 9 through 13. We see the I am third principle applied within the church family primarily. So verse 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. What undergoods all of those is the I am third perspective. But then in verses 14 through 21, uh, we see the I am third principle applied to the patterns of the world for the most part. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Now, that is so opposite to the quid pro quo normative view in the Greco-Roman world. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, never be wise in your own sight, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you'll heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now this is the I am third code of conduct that follows the model of servanthood given by Jesus Christ. Living this way is to have in ourselves the mind of Christ. Living this way is the way for us as Christians to overcome that which is evil around us, even the evils of the broken cultures of the world. Now, this is our introduction to the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 6, our introduction to this matter of slaves and masters, the doulos and the despot. And it leads us to what is our main point, the place we must begin in order to fairly see how the New Testament treats the institution of slavery, the beginning principles of Christian conduct, summarized this way. Since God is first and our neighbor is second, then to serve God and others according to the truth of the gospel, we must take third place the place of serving God and serving others. It is this third place perspective that is the only way we can avoid being co-opted and conformed by the patterns of the world. It is the only way to overcome the evil patterns of the world. It is the way of Christ. So when we continue next week, we will look at the yoke of slavery in the New Testament world. And we will see that the yoke is not endorsed in the New Testament. 
But we will also see that the breaking of the yoke took place because of the moral vision of the I am third code and calling of Jesus Christ. So here's our final takeaway. Since God is first and our neighbor is second, then to serve God and others according to the truth of the gospel, we must take third place. The place of serving God and serving others. Amen to the glory of the name Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, this morning it would be our prayer and our deepest desire that we would be conformed to Christ in such a way that we would understand how to rank the most significant things in life, how to live according to the two greatest commandments, and how that enables us to understand then where we rank in life and what we are called to. Our Father Jesus himself said that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Our Father, help us to understand that we are to have in ourselves the mind of Christ. And so as we think about all the awful and ugly issues that challenge the world at this time, remind us again of who we are. We are the church, the pillar and buttress of the truth. And remind us of why we are. We are to be those who are messengers of the truth, the truth of the gospel, the truth of your word. And then speak to us. How can we live in such a way that we fully honor you? Remind us that we place you first, other second, and we take our place in third, the proper place for those who know they're called to serve. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. To conclude our service this morning, I'd like to draw our attention to hymn number 559. It really is one of the preeminent pieces of poetry in the Trinity hymnal that points out how our lives before God are at his disposal in his hands for the sake of service to him. Father, I know that all my life is portioned out for me. The changes that are sure to come, I do not fear to see. I ask thee for a present mind intent on pleasing thee. I would not have the restless will that hurries to and fro, seeking for some great thing to do or secret thing to know. I would be treated as a child and guided where I go. I ask thee for the daily strength to none that ask denied, a mind to blend with outward life while keeping at thy side, content to fill a little space if thou be glorified in service which thy will appoints there are no bonds for me my secret heart is taught the truth that makes thy children free a life of self-renouncing love is one of liberty amen receive now these final words as god sends us forth to serve him be at peace among yourselves, brothers, while you admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, 
help the weak. Be patient with them all. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen.